Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. So the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, some good news actually. Uh, The Senate is expected to vote on the Yemen War Powers Resolution. So Senator Bernie Sanders told The Intercept on Monday that he could bring a Yemen War Powers Resolution to the floor of the Senate for a vote, hopefully next week, is what he said. So this resolution would end U.S. support for the brutal Saudi-led war and blockade on Yemen. According to the U.N., this siege has killed at least 377,000 people, more than half of which are children under the age of five. So that's both combat deaths and then you know, people starving to death or dying of disease uh, due to the conditions caused by the war and blockade. So a version of this resolution has been introduced in the House and the Senate, and both have received strong bipartisan support. The House version has over 100 co-sponsors. That That's a lot. That's a lot of co-sponsors and both mostly Democrats, but also Republicans, too. And when he was asked by The Intercept if he will have enough votes to pass the resolution, Sanders says that he thinks they do. So a similar resolution made it through Congress in 2019, but the measure was vetoed by President Trump. So if you want to put pressure on your senator to uh, vote in favor of this, you can call 1-833-STOP-WAR. To get connected with your senator as well as your House representative, because if this thing gets through the Senate, you know, it has to get through the House quick before the new Congress is sworn in and they're going to have to start this all over again. So hopefully, you know, if this does happen, it happens very quick. And you could also go to 1833stopwar.com. If you go there, you will see um, there's a lot of information about this legislation and there's also helpful prompts for what to say when you get connected. You, know, you put in your zip code and then they uh, connect you with your representative or your senator's office. And there's a lot of, again, just good prompts, good things to read when you make the call um, that that help me out. Because um, you know, I always just kind of feel weird making calls like this, but it makes it easier. So violence has been down in Yemen this year thanks to a ceasefire that was enacted from March to October. And so the ceasefire expired in October, but since then there still have been no reported Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, which is still huge, and there's been no Houthi attacks inside Saudi Arabia. But there has been an increase in fighting on the ground, so that means you know this thing could really spiral out of control any day now. And while the blockade has been eased since the ceasefire, the Saudis have allowed uh, limited flights in and out of the Sana'a airport, which was closed for years under the blockade. It's still limited, though, and and they've allowed more fuel ships to dock in Hodeidah, which is Yemen's Red Sea port. Um, But still, you know, the blockade hasn't been fully lifted, and the situation on the ground for the people of Yemen, for the civilians, is still really bad. Um, But... You know, this has a chance, I think, because this is the time to do it right now. The Democrats are not happy with the Saudis and his plan. Um, Sanders's plan to bring this to a vote. It comes as influential Democrats, including Bob Menendez, who is the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, very hawkish, um, are saying are calling for a fundamental change to the U.S.-Saudi relationship 
in response to the OPEC plus cuts in oil production that were announced in October. So we heard a lot of complaining out of the Democrats and the Biden administration about those cuts, mostly because they came right before the midterms, but, you know, haven't really seen any action. And cutting off U.S. support for the Saudis would effectively ground their air force, you know, would really force them to have to make a real peace deal here or just end the war um, because they're so reliant on U.S. maintenance. Since the war started in 2015, you know, there's a lot of background to give here, but um, the U.S., the important thing is just how brutal the the war has been for civilians. This U.S.-backed Saudi, UAE, and other Gulf country coalition regularly bombs civilian targets in Yemen since 2015, and civilian casualties actually really spiked earlier in this year, right before the ceasefire, um, you know, some of the deadliest months of the Saudi air war uh, in years. Um, so, you know, things were really bad and they can get really bad again if uh, a real peace deal isn't reached, a real end to the war, not just a pause in uh, in the airstrikes and, and other types of fighting. So hopefully, you know, Sanders is true to his word here and he brings this thing to a vote next week. But I think it would be really good to put some pressure on senators and and people in the house as well uh, to get, cause this would have to really move quick. And again, I think, you know, with, with the Democrats unhappy with the Saudis, this is definitely a good time to do it. So the next article here is related. The Saudi crown prince escapes lawsuit after Biden grants immunity. So the fiance uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington post columnist who was killed by the Saudis at a consulate in Turkey filed a lawsuit against MBS and the U S you know, said that MBS who's the crown prince. And now he's also, I think technically the prime minister of Saudi Arabia, he, uh, the Biden administration said he should be, uh, entitled to immunity. And because of that, um, it really just ended the lawsuit because the judge, you know, didn't really have uh, any action from there. If if the person that they're trying to sue or you know bring this lawsuit against is immune, um, so a Saudi court did convict several killings of several people for killing Khashoggi, but you know they they human rights advocates and people say that the trial was just really a cover up. Um, because there's been all these other other evidence that suggests MBS was involved and MBS ordered the killing. Um, but, you know, he hasn't faced any consequences from the U.S. for it. And this comes after, you know, Biden on the campaign trail, he vowed to make MBS treat the Saudis as a pariah. And he really hasn't done that. Um, you know, I think the liberal anger about Khashoggi's killing could really be, you know, harnessed to help end the war in Yemen and, and over the oil, oil production cuts. Um, so right now, again, it's just a good time because there's a lot of pressure over Biden's relationship with the Saudis um, for this Yemen war powers resolution to pass. All right. The next one here, another drone attack hits an air base inside Russian territory. So an airfield in the Russian city of Kursk was targeted by a drone strike on Tuesday, and this was following 
This was a day after two air bases deep inside Russian territory were hit by Ukrainian drones. Tuesday's attack targeted an airfield that is about 80 miles from the Ukrainian border, causing a nearby oil tank to catch fire. So the region's governor said that there were no casualties in the incident. Um, so the Tuesday attack, 80 miles from the Ukrainian border, the ones the day before were much deeper, you know, like 250 to 300 miles away from the Ukrainian border. And then after those attacks on Monday, Russia launched this pretty serious missile strikes on Ukrainian energy infrastructure. On Tuesday, the Kremlin said that they're taking necessary measures to counter, you know, these types of attacks. And Kiev, again, they still haven't officially taken credit for Monday's attacks, but and and I haven't seen any word on the Tuesday drone strike if whether officially or just speaking to the media, Ukraine has taken credit. But I think it's pretty clear that Ukraine is responsible. Uh, Ukrainian official told the New York Times, you know, speaking on the condition of anonymity that Ukraine was behind the attack on Monday. Those were the the drone strikes that went much deeper into Russian territory. And Russia has really demonstrated that it will significantly escalate its war in Ukraine in response to attacks on its territory. Um, as I often point out, Russia did not start launching these large-scale missile strikes on Ukrainian energy infrastructure until after the truck bombing of the Crimean Bridge in October. So the U.S. has sought assurances from Ukraine that it won't use U.S.-provided arms to target Russian territory, with an exception for Crimea. Uh, even though Russia has controlled it since 2014. And Russia said that the drones used on Monday were Soviet-made, uh, you know, a modified old version of a old Soviet drones is what Russia says. So it doesn't look like it was U.S. weapons. And Ned Price, who's the State Department spokesman, he said on Tuesday that the U.S. was not helping, was not enabling or encouraging Ukraine to strike beyond its borders. But again, they, they are have signed off on attacks on Crimea, um, which just seem to be just as, uh, in, in Russia's eyes, just as much of a provocation uh, of an escalation as attacks elsewhere, uh, you know, in the Russian mainland. All right, so the next one, Poland changes course and it will accept German Patriot missiles. So Poland, so Germany offered Poland to deploy a German Patriot missile system along with German troops to Poland after that Ukrainian air defense missile landed in Poland and killed two people. For At first, Poland said that they would accept it, and then they kind of rejected the offer and said that it should be sent to Ukraine instead. And now Poland is saying that they will accept it, that they will accept the uh, German system. So, um, but Germany's, uh, sorry, so Poland's defense minister kind of sounded reluctant when he said he would accept the deployment. He expressed disappointment that it won't go to Ukraine. Uh, he wrote on Twitter, quote, following a conversation with the German defense ministry, I disappointingly accepted the decision to reject support for Ukraine, uh, end quote. So there, you know, he's just kind of, doesn't sound like they're too happy about accepting this system. And, you know, tensions have been pretty high between Germany and Poland. You have Poland accusing Germany of not arming Ukraine, you know, properly and asking for trillions of dollars in reparations from World War II. 
Um, but he did say that they're working on arrangements with Germany to on deploying these launchers. So a big thing here, you know, when Poland told Germany, you know, send them to Ukraine, Germany rejected that pretty quickly because Germany's not offering to give them a, these missiles. They're offering to deploy them with German troops. So what Poland was suggesting was a NATO deployment in Ukraine. Um, so that got shot down pretty quick. All right, so the next one here, Hungary blocks EU aid for Ukraine. So on Tuesday, Hungary blocked a massive EU aid package for Ukraine worth 18 billion euros, which is about $18.9 billion. Um, and of course, you know, this is angering other EU members, what they did here. And Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, he said that, you know, Hungary is not against sending aid to Ukraine, but objects to how the EU wants to do it. So the 18 billion euro plan would require all 27 EU members to jointly borrow the funds. And Hungar Hungarian officials said previously that, that they don't want to get, they don't want to do that, um, jointly borrow the money with the rest of the EU. So this 18 billion euro aid package is meant for is meant to help cover Ukraine's massive budget deficit which is 38 billion dollars for their 2023 budget and the US is expected to put up a similar amount for the deficit um, and that's included in this 37 billion dollar uh, new Ukraine aid package that the White House wants Congress to approve that includes 14.5 billion in this budgetary aid and this is not, you know, this new aid that the White House is asking for is not expected to cover all of 2023. You know, they're going to be asking for more eventually. So basically, Orban said that, you know, they Hungary is, is not against giving assistance to Ukraine, says that they're ready to give assistance to Ukraine, but that they don't like the this method of doing it. He said, quote, if we continue to go down the road towards a debt community, we will not be able to turn back, end quote. So or Orban, Hungary, they're already at odds with Brussels and they risk losing billions in EU funding over allegations of corruption and money mismanagement and things like that. And, and these allegations really started being leveled since Orban won re-election in April. Um, so, you know, they, they don't seem to like him too much. And this is probably going to make that more so. And people are saying, you know, he's just doing this to leverage um, to get to, to make sure that they don't lose this funding that they're trying to de deprive Hungary of 7.5 billion euros in EU funding. All right. Next here, Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri. He is a China hawk, and he sent a letter to Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Tuesday urging the Biden administration to prioritize arming Taiwan over Ukraine. So Hawley has, uh, you know, he's in favor of giving Taiwan billions in military aid each year. Last year, he introduced a bill that would do that, and I, I think he's a pretty big supporter of these plans that they have in the NDAA to start giving Taiwan billions each year. And he's voted against Ukraine aid packages and he voted against NATO expanding into Finland and Sweden. He was the only one in the Senate to do it. But the reason why is because he thinks the U.S. should be building up in the Asia Pacific, not in Eastern Europe. He, and this is, you know, more along that line, this letter that he sent to Blinken. 
He told Blinken that Taiwan is more important to U.S. national interests than Ukraine. And he claimed that the U.S. needs to start sending more arms to Taiwan to prevent a Chinese invasion. So this is the rhetoric that you see, that, that we have to arm Taiwan in the name of deterrence, even though China's made very clear that more U.S. support, they're just going to increase the pressure on Taiwan in response to the increasing U.S. support for the island. So the letter said that if both Taiwan and Ukraine need a certain weapon, so uh, it should go to Taiwan first. And he pointed to a massive backlog in deliveries of U.S. weapons that have already been sold to Taiwan, but, but they haven't been delivered. And uh, he's saying really, you know, some of these include, you know, Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that they've been sending to Ukraine. And he's saying here, we got to be sending these to Taiwan. Um, so it is unfortunate that, you know, some of the opposition in Congress to arming Ukraine to supporting this proxy war against Russia is is because they think we should be doing it in Taiwan against China instead. Um, so Congress is working to give Taiwan, you know, start to give them military aid, which, you know, the U.S. has always sold Taiwan weapons since they severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979. So some people will argue that, oh, it's, it's you know, we've always given them weapons, but military aid is different. I mean, that's something that you do for, you know, a country you consider an ally. And, you know, that doesn't fit with the one China policy. So China is definitely um, not going to be happy about it. Uh, and they're going to react in some way. Okay. So again, so really, I think Hawley's view, um, there's strong bipartisan support for arming Taiwan. But I still think that right now the priority for you know most people in Congress is to be flooding Ukraine with weapons and uh, but you know also start doing it in Taiwan, just not at the same level. Uh, all right, the next one here, another China story. They say China says that the U.S. report on its nuclear stockpile is groundless speculation. So I think it was last week that I went over this. The Pentagon released its annual report on China's military power which said China could have 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. So China is dismissing this as groundless speculation and said that the U.S. was hyping up the threat of Beijing's military. So current estimates put China's nuclear arsenal at about 350 warheads, much smaller than what the U.S. and Russia have. They both have around 6,000. U.S. has a little less than 6,000. Russia has a little more. The Pentagon... Um, Oh, sorry, I said that already. But the comments criticizing the report came from the Chinese Defense Ministry. So according to AFP, that their spokesman said that the report, quote, distorts China's defense policy and military strategy, is groundless speculation on China's military development, and is the U.S.'s customary trick to hype up and exaggerate China's so-called military threat, end quote. Um, so... This the reason why I you know wrote this up and wanted to highlight it is because it's true it could just be groundless speculation um, these claims from the Pentagon about what China's plans are I mean how would they know that they're going to have build that many nuclear warheads um, by 2035 you know China there has signaled you know that they that they do want to inc increase their nuclear deterrence but. Um, you know, we don't know what exactly that means, if, how many warheads that they that, that they want to build. 
And it is, you know, part of hyping up the threat to justify more spending, to justify the, the U.S.'s nuclear modernization and all that. So it's just always good to keep that in mind when we're talking about this. All right. The next one uh, is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. Canada is planning to make more Taiwan straight transits. So this is really uh, <laughs> going to scare China, I'm sure. But um, this is just an example of how the U.S.'s, you know, Western allies are getting in, you know, kind of on the provocations against China. So th this was Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie. She announced um, that they plan to, you know, send more ships into the Taiwan Strait. I believe recently, maybe it was last year, the U.S. and Canada did a joint patrol through the Taiwan Strait. Um, yeah, so she said it was this past summer that they had a frigate going through the Taiwan Strait along with the U.S. And they're looking to have more frigates going through the strait. Um, so... Again, this is an, an example of the Western increase in uh, just focus on this part of the world. And, and you know, Canada is a NATO country, too. So, you know, we're going to see a lot more of this country's NATO, European NATO countries focusing on this part of the world as well, not just the U.S. All right. Next here, Al Jazeera uh, is taking... Israel to the ICC over the killing of Shireen Abu Ekla. So Al Jazeera has submitted a formal request to the International Criminal Court to investigate and prosecute the Israeli soldiers for killing, responsible for killing Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Ekla. So Al Jazeera announced this on Tuesday. So Abu Ekla, she was 51 years old, a veteran reporter for Al Jazeera Arabic and a household name across the Arab world was shot dead on May 11th while covering an Israeli military raid in the Palestinian city of Jenin in the occupied West Bank. Her death, which was widely condemned, sparked multiple investigations, including one by the UN, which concluded that Israeli forces likely killed her. And there's also investigations that suggested that it was a targeted killing or concluded that it was a targeted killing and not an accident, like Israel said. Um, so, of course, Israel's not happy about it, calling them, you know, anti-Semitic for wanting to bring them to the ICC. Um, so it's more pressure on Israel for killing a this Palestinian American journalist that was wearing, you know, a big vest, like if the one in this picture that said "press across it," and she was shot in the in the head, I believe, in the neck, you know, or the face. I mean, you know. And uh, Israel claims that there was like a gun fight going on in the region and uh, not the region that in the area, uh, but that other witnesses and, and investigations say that that wasn't true. All right. So the last news story here, Turkey says that Finland must lift its arms embargo to join NATO. So I went over this yesterday, a little kind of a little bit that Sweden and Finland imposed an arms embargo on Turkey in 2019 in response to Turkey's incursion into Northeast Syria against the Kurd Kurdish groups then. And Sweden announced in September that they were lifting the arms embargo, but Finland has not announced it yet. So Turkey's saying that. And they're saying this as Finland's defense minister is, is heading to Turkey this week 
on Thursday for talks about NATO membership. And they're saying, you know, you got to announce that you're lifting this arms embargo and they're hoping that it happens during this visit. Um, so this is just another aspect of this deal that Turkey signed with Sweden and Finland back in June to admit them into NATO. You know, a big part of it is the extradition of the suspected PKK members, and that's more so Sweden. Um, but this is another part of it. I would expect Finland's probably going to do this. I mean, it would be nice if, uh, you know, these countries did not want to go along with all of Turkey's demands to get into NATO. But it seems like uh, they probably are. I mean, Sweden's only extradited one person so far that was a suspected PKK member. You know, somebody that sought asylum in Sweden and they're just selling them out to Turkey um, so they could join NATO, it looks like. Um, but we'll see. I mean, Turkey seems like they're really going to keep making demands and maybe at some point it'll just be too much for Sweden and Finland. Uh, but that's it for the news. Uh, we have a lot of good viewpoints. You could go check out one from Ted Snyder, how aligned is the Atlantic Alliance? And it's kind of about the fractures and cracks among NATO, um, including Turkey. You know, Turkey is a huge NATO country and, you know, they're not on board with what the U S and the, the rest of NATO have been doing. Um, uh, you know, in regards to Russia, uh, we have one from Marcy Winograd uh, about um, uh, it's called Letter to the Left on Ukraine. And it's kind of just an overview of, um, you know, how the anti-war movement should oppose, uh, you know, U.S. involvement and stuff. And they form this new Ukrainian peace coalition. You know, that's against uh, U.S. and NATO involvement in the war. You go check that out. One from Jeffrey Kai at his uh medium about how the cia uh was told to you know destroy people that were accusing the u.s of using biological warfare in korea you know using leftover from the japanese in world war ii um but yeah so that's it for me for today uh i'll be back tomorrow with some more news you could always support the show antiwar.com slash donate uh, like and subscribe on YouTube, leave reviews, do all that stuff, share the show. You could buy some t-shirts, antiwar.com t-shirts or coffee mugs or other merch like that in the link below. Um, that's another good way to support us. Uh, but that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.